Well, welcome to Grace, everybody. Good to see you this weekend. <clears throat> There's some uh, folks coming in still, so if you have a seat near you, surrender it. Uh, but uh, it's also a good time to remember Saturday services. Uh, Jesus loves you more if you go to church on Saturday, and you only have to tithe 9%. There's a little discount <laughs> going on. And if you're running really late and you can hear me out in the lobby or on the internet, uh, you still have 25 minutes before services start at the extension, and Jesus will love you a ton if, uh, if you go there. Hey, before I get rolling uh, this weekend, I, I went to the store yesterday, which I hate to do. I only go in cases of dire emergencies, and so it was an emergency, and I went to the store and it was so crowded, right? So everybody's getting ready for Thanksgiving, which is awesome. And then you go into the store and everything's like ready for Christmas and packed out for Christmas. And that's fine too. Uh, and I'm excited about all that stuff too. Real excited about the Christmas season here as we're kind of finishing up our planning for that and the Christmas services and the Christmas series and things like that. I think you're really going to get a lot out of that. But I want to be sure with Thanksgiving coming and Christmas coming that we don't skip over Veterans Day. And so the, yesterday was Veterans Day. It's Veterans Day weekend. And uh, I want to I honor that. If you have served or you are currently serving in our armed forces, would you stand up real quick so we can say thank you to you? Just go ahead and pop up. And can you say thank you to these men and women? So uh, I want to, we, we are, uh, we're grateful for you guys, and uh, we, my family has quite a few uh, people in the military, our nephew is a captain in the army right now, and so I just want you to know that as a church, we love you, we're proud of you, um, you have served us, and some of you have brought a lot home with you, in so many ways you serve us every day, and we don't want to take that for granted, so thank you, and, uh, and happy Veterans Day. Uh, we're in a series Ryan talked about called Love Differently, and we're at the end of a kind of a long journey that we've been on. We'll finish our conversations next week before we head into Christmas stuff. Uh, but the conversation started with this idea. A bunch of stuff blew up on TV, right? Uh, a bunch of uh, racial protests, a bunch of uh, people protesting this group and that group. And we looked at that and just said, wait a minute, Th those guys, they have the cross. Some of them are claiming the name of Jesus. This group over there says that they're a church. And we're looking at that stuff and I'm looking at it. And I'm like, I, I don't want anything to do with those people. I don't agree at all with where they're at. And by the way, God doesn't either, but they have the, the title Christian slapped on it. And so we said, what, let's do some good hard work. Let's go deep into the Bible deep into the teachings of Jesus, and let's understand exactly what Jesus believes is a Christ follower or a Christian. And let's get our definition from that, not from the television or from the, the nonsense that's around it. So we've been doing that and uh, walk through this journey uh, <clears throat> with live differently, see differently, now love differently. And if you're looking for those definitions and you're trying to figure that out, uh, all that's on our website or on the app, and, and it's, a, it's a good process to walk through and see what the Bible actually says, what we would actually believe about it. So in love differently, uh, this is kind of the crescendo of this conversation because if, if you were going to ask Jesus himself, when you look at the Bible, and if you said to him, Jesus, what do you want your followers known for? If they were going to have a hallmark what would it be? What's the biggest thing? He would say, 
I want those who follow me to be known by their love. Above truth, truth is important. Above morality, morality is important. Uh, Above ethics, ethics is important. Way above politics. I want all of that to be defined by love. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, listen, you can do all these spiritual things. Uh, You can know the Bible. You can act in all these spiritual ways. But if you don't have love, all you are is a a gong or a symbol. You're You're just a bunch of noise. All of that has to be filtered through love. Truth has to be brought through love. Morality has to be brought through love. Ethics brought through love. Lifestyle behavior changes brought through love. If you don't have love, then, then none of that stuff has any power. And I want my people known for that. Doesn't mean we won't agree with you. That, that we, may, we may disagree with you because the Bible would teach us certain things. So we, we probably can't agree with you on morality and marriage and some life issues and things like that. We're going to have to stand where the Bible's at. That doesn't mean that we're going to see eye to eye even personally. Uh, we may have different political views. You may be tax cut. We may be tax raised. Like, it doesn't mean that we, we sync up and, and, and nobody ever has an opinion or that the Bible has to be watered down and you have to make it mean something that doesn't. What it means, though, is as we do that, we do it in love. And Jesus would look and say, <clears throat> that's my people. They, they love each other. You'll know they're my disciples by their love for one another. They do that with each other. They accept each other, love each other, care for each other in that way. They love their neighbors as themselves. They'll even love their enemies, right? And even, even if you square off and go head to head and oppose them vehemently, they will love you, even if they won't yield the ground, so to say, they will love you in that process. So that's what we started talking about. And last weekend, we, we laid down a definition that's an important one of what, what is Christ-like love, right? So we wanted to look at that and say, when, when Jesus says love, what does he mean? So we defined it kind of real clearly, and we said this, Christ-like love is a self-initiated sacrificial act that benefits another even if undeserved or not requested. That's Christ-like love. It's self-initiated, sacrificial for another person even if undeserved or unrequested. And that's how Jesus loved us. God self-initiated. When when Christ came for us, he came to the earth, that was self-initiated, right? So he did that. It was sacrificial, Jesus didn't get anything out of it. He, he never got rich. He didn't have a bunch of money. He didn't have a big house, no private jet, nothing like that. What he got was crucified. So it was sacrificial. He laid down his life, he said, and he took it up again, he said. He raised himself from the dead. So sacrificial. And it was for you and me. We, we were undeserving. The Bible says, before I'm a follower of Christ, I'm an enemy of God, in my heart, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and <clears throat> we weren't requesting it. There, there wasn't this, this big global Twitter movement. It wasn't a, a trending topic of, send the Savior now in December, about the 25th. They, none, none of that, right? So none of that was going on. So it was self-initiated, sacrificial for the benefit of another for people who didn't deserve it and weren't even asking for it. And then Jesus says, I want you to love like that. You love the way that you've been loved. I want that, I want that to be the hallmark of my people. That, that, that is what you can expect from a Christ follower and what they would be known for. If you were going through a hard time 
<clears throat> and even if you knew they didn't agree and you knew that they had a different view of life and you knew they weren't going to compromise on the Bible, they would still love you, right? And that's the hallmark of my people. So we've been looking at that, and, and we started this conversation last weekend. And uh, what I want to do this weekend is really kind of like a part B of this, right? We, we kind of want to move forward. Now, if you weren't here, you'll be fine. You'll get everything we're talking about. But if you wanted to, go out on, on the app or the web later on and like fill in the backfill of that. It, you might like that too. But last weekend, we laid down this definition. This weekend, I want to really talk to you about what that love looks like and how it would play out in real time in our lives. Now, to do that, I'm going to take us to a passage that I believe is a core principle in Christian teaching. And, and if I was looking at kind of the, the, the really, really key pieces of Jesus's teaching, I would take you to this passage because I think he explains some really fundamental things here. And so it's important. So you might have heard this in Sunday school, if you grew up in Sunday school or confirmation class or something like that. You might have heard about it. And if you've gone to Grace for more than like a year, you've probably heard this passage. I get this out about every 18 to 24 months and reinforce it because this is a core piece of teaching at Grace Church. We would say this, this passage defines our culture a lot and it, it's reminiscent or reflecting of who we want to be corporately as a church, okay? So grab your Bibles if you got them, and we're going to go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 725 in those Bibles, and all this is on the app, and this is the story of the Good Samaritan. So Luke chapter 10, page 725. By the way, if you don't own a Bible or a newer one, just keep that one and have it, <clears throat> and let's look at this. And yes, I am about ready to put on reading glasses because it has happened to me. I used to be the young, dynamic guy, and now I'm just kind of classically sexy in my middle age, but, but I have to wear glasses because I can't see anymore. Okay, here we go. Verse 25, Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the, the, the expert in the law responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this is what's happening. Jesus is kind of out and about this expert in the law. This is an ancient Jewish lawyer. So this is a lawyer. Fill in all appropriate lawyer jokes right here. So this is a lawyer. He's trying to think of a courtroom. He's trying to corner Jesus. And so he asks him kind of a trick question because he's, he's testing him. He wants to push into him. And he says, what do I have to do to, to inherit eternal life? How do I know that I have salvation? How do I know that God is, we would say, in our heart? How do I, how do I know that? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, being brilliant, and Jesus flips the coin back on him and he says, well, what do you think? What do you think, expert in the law? You know the law. What's the law say? How do you read it? What do you think about it? And then the lawyer gives this answer. He actually quotes the law out of the Old Testament, and he says this. He says, this is the lawyer's answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
He gives him that answer, and Jesus says something fascinating in the next verse. He says, hey, good answer. He said, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So Jesus looks and says, hey, that's right. You know the law. You've been raised in the law. We might say you've been raised in church. You've gone to Sunday school. You've studied the Bible. You know the law, and you nailed it. What do you think? Here's what I think. What's the law say? What do you, th- what do you think God says about how to inherit eternal life? And he quotes it. This is what God says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're correct. Do that perfectly, right? That's a big, big passage. In fact, if you've gone to grace for more than like a month, you've heard us teach you that passage. We teach that passage all the time, Because we would look and say that is a very, very foundational teaching or doctrine of Christianity. And we believe that because Jesus said it. Called the great commandment. Another place in the Bible, a guy came up to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered him with a version of this. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on those two commandments. That's Jesus' words. And he looked at that guy in that passage, and he said, listen, everything is there. All truth has to filter through loving God and loving your neighbor. All behavioral corrections in the Bible have to filter through loving God and loving your neighbor. All moral questions filter through loving God and loving your neighbor. Everything hangs on that. You pull that out, and you're a cymbal or a clanging gong. You're, you're a spiritual person who makes a bunch of noise. Even though you might be right with your answer. You put that in, and everything makes sense. So this guy nailed it and said, hey, that, that's the answer. And Jesus said, great. He goes, then if you want to inherit eternal life, if you want to be sure that God has transformed your heart, do that, lawyer boy. Do that. Do that perfectly. Do that with everybody. Do that, love me absolutely, and love other people absolutely, and you'll be good to go. Now, Jesus is reading this guy's heart, reading his mind a little bit. He knows what he's doing, because he's a lawyer, right? If you're a lawyer, I'm sorry, you picked. This is our Lord and our Savior, right? So he's a lawyer, and Jesus pushes back into him, and he sees what he's doing, and, and he realizes if he asks this question, he's going to address the test that this guy is putting him to. Jesus says, do that perfectly and you will live. And then the lawyer does something. He realizes he's trapped a little bit and he does this. He wanted, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The lawyer is, is put into a corner that he was trying to put Jesus in. Jesus says, do that perfectly. And the lawyer's thinking this, I don't do that like at all. I don't love like this. I don't love all the people. I don't love God. Seeking to justify himself. How do I get out of this corner that I'm in? How do I come up with an excuse that's viable enough for me not to love my neighbor and my Lord he asked a question, and this is what he said. Jesus, who is my neighbor? This very old, heady, ethereal question. Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who, what is a neighbor, really? What is the concept 
of neighbor? What is the ethos of neighboring? Who is my neighbor? And what Jesus does next is fascinating as he leans into this person's justification of why he doesn't need to love God and love his neighbor. Now, let's pause here for a second, okay? We laugh a little bit, and we're picking on the lawyer, but I would really believe that that's where most of us are. Me too. If you ask me the question, Jeff, what does God want the most? I, I've told you a thousand times. If you come to church here, I've told you a thousand times. Love God, love the people that God loves. Love God, love the people that God loves. And then if you looked back at me and said, do you do that, Jeff? Are you, are you always loving people the way that you would want them to love you? And do you love God? Is that the hallmark of your life? I might look at you and say, who is my neighbor? What does it mean to neighbor, right? I, I'm just being honest with you. I mean, maybe you don't struggle with this, but I do. I often seek to justify myself. Here's the reason why in this circumstance, that law that I know and I can quote and I gave as an answer does not apply to me. Here's the justification why, why that person is not the person I need to love, why that group is not the group that I need to love, why, why that neighborhood is not a neighborhood that I need to be involved with, why, why that cause is not the cause that I need to... And I will often seek to justify myself so that I can get out of Jesus' direct question of saying, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Now, here's what's fascinating. In our culture today, one of the biggest ways that we justify ourselves is this, ready? We confuse sympathy with love. We confuse sympathy with love. There's nothing wrong with sympathy. Don't hear me wrong. There's nothing wrong with sympathy. In fact, there's a lot right with it. But sympathy is not Christian love. So this is what we'll do a lot of times. We will, we will do things like this. We will raise awareness. It's a big term. We'll raise awareness. And the modern way of raising awareness is hashtag campaigns, right? So hashtag the environment. Hashtag, by the way, is the pound symbol on your phone. Have one of your eight-year-old kids tell you, right? So hashtag, whatever, right? So we will raise awareness. We'll have a hashtag campaign. Now, sometimes that's very, very helpful. So we will raise awareness about human sex trafficking. I'm grateful for that. I didn't know about human sex trafficking. I don't think that way. So I'm grateful that awareness was raised for me. We'll, we'll raise awareness about the heroin epidemic. That, well, I'm grateful for it because I, I don't do a lot of drugs, so I, I don't know a lot about that world, right? So I'm glad. I wouldn't know that that was such an epidemic if somebody hadn't said that. We'll raise awareness about fatherlessness. We'll raise awareness about the inner city. We'll raise awareness about troubled school district. We'll, we'll raise awareness about kind of fill in the blank. Now, this is where we have to be careful. Oftentimes, when I help to raise awareness or I retweet the hashtag, I will think to myself, I have loved. I have loved. I have participated. I care. I think about, I feel, it's on my mind. I know the answer. 
I know that God loves those people, and I know that they're my neighbors, and so look what I have done. I have been a part of raising awareness of this problem. And I would say to you, be real careful right there. Because raising awareness is not the same as Christian love, not the same as loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is always going to necessitate involvement. I'm going to have to be tied into a person's life or a group of people's life. It's not just me sympathizing or feeling. I, I have to attach to it somehow. Loving your neighbor is always going to have a name. Instead of like homelessness, malnutrition, that's awareness, that's sympathy. It's going to have a name. That person, that neighborhood, that specific area that I'm tied into. And love always is going to cost something. At a minimum, money. At a maximum, your time, your energy, and maybe your life. See? In fact, I believe this. I believe that Jesus would say this. If he was here today, He's the one who said, our heart and our treasure are always in the same place. Our heart and our treasure are always in the same place. I believe that Jesus would look and say, if you have raised awareness and you have retweeted the hashtag, but you have never spent a dollar to help out, you actually don't care. Until you've involved yourself, until you have interacted with an individual, until you have paid some kind of a price, you actually have not loved. And everything else, it's not that sympathy is bad, it's not that awareness is bad, actually sometimes it's very, very helpful. But for the Christian, until I move into that other category, I actually have not loved my neighbor as myself. And those things become a justification for me, not exercising the law of God to love God and love my neighbor as myself. So this is where the lawyer was. And what Jesus does next is, is brilliant and fascinating. Jesus uses an illustrative story, okay? So we call this a parable, and it's just an illustrative story. And he makes up this story, Jesus does, to, to illustrate with the lawyer how he, he, is, he is justifying himself, and he uses the story to break down his justifications, right? So if you look at the passage, grab your Bibles there, see the whole thing play out. The lawyer's trying to justify himself. You've answered correctly. You want to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus creates his illustrative story and helps him to understand what, what, how he's trying to get out of this action. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Okay, so that's the scenario. Guy's traveling, he gets mugged, they rob him of everything, he's laying in the ditch, he's bloody, he's muddy, and he's half dead in the ditch beside the road. Okay, and then Jesus brings in three characters to illustrate to the lawyer his desire to justify and then his conviction to actually do neighborly love. So the first character is a priest. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by 
on the other side. The priest is coming down the road. He sees the half-dead guy bloody in the ditch. And when he sees the guy, this is the, the, this is the illustration, he literally goes to the other side of the road. Now, the ancient expert in the law, the ancient lawyer, would have started to do the math immediately, but I'll, I'll color it in for you, okay? What that priest believed was this. Ancient Jewish priests believed that if they touched or were, or were within the vicinity of a dead body, it caused them to be unqualified to, per, to perform their priestly duties. So when he saw the guy in the ditch, he thought to himself, he's either dead or almost dead or possibly dead. I don't want to be disqualified from my priestly duties, so I went to the other side of the road to be away from that. That's how he justified not interacting with the guy on the side of the road. This is the thought process. I'm on my way to the temple, dead guy or maybe dead guy. I don't want to be disqualified because I need to go teach people to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbors themselves. And if I touch the guy in the ditch, the half-dead, half-naked guy in the ditch, then I can't stand before my congregation and teach them about God's love and their love for their neighbor. I would be disqualified from doing that. And so he justified it that way. That's why I can't be involved with that issue. And I would tend to say these are justifications that I was taught growing up of why we don't help the spiritually dead, why we don't involve ourselves with certain people, because I had these kind of spiritual justifications. Uh, when I was growing up, I was taught a purity justification that, that I, I don't want and I can't have that around me. If I'm with the, the addict and everybody knows that they're an addict and then me and that guy are out getting a burger and that picture goes up on Instagram, people will know I'm friends with a sinner. And if you know that I'm a friend with a sinner, when I stand up to teach you, I'm to be a moral example. I'm to be an ethical example. My life is to be above the life of somebody like that. I, I might lose my credibility with my kids. I might lose my witness if I am connected with that person. And Jesus would say, wait a minute, but they're bloody and they're muddy and they're in the ditch. Yep, I can't be connected with that. I have to stay pure. Another justification that kind of rang true with the lawyer as he heard this example of the priest is the protection justification. The protection justification. And, and, and I, I was raised in a tradition like this. We were, we were raised in what was called a separatist tradition. So not only were we not allowed to be around the person in the ditch, the sinner, we weren't allowed to be around the people who were around those people. We had to be separated from them completely because if we got connected with some woman that's trapped in the sex trade, or we got connected with an addict, or we got connected with an unbeliever, or we got connected with a person who sees porn, or we get connected with this, that might infect us. So we're not going to be connected with them, and then we're not going to be connected with the people who are connected with them, because we might catch whatever they have. 
and I'm not going to have my kids around them. I'm not going to allow that to be in my home. I'm not going to be friends with those people because after all, I have to teach about loving God and loving your neighbor. And my morality is what you see. My behavior is what you see. The purity of my life is what you see and what I celebrate and what I want for you. See? The, the other justification that the lawyer would have done the math on and that Jesus was le leading into was the hopelessness justification. I struggle with this. I don't know if you do, but, but it, it, it sounds like this. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, this heroin is rampant. Government doesn't know what to do. This sex trafficking is rampant. Government doesn't know what to do. If there was a solution, the government would come up with it. Everybody knows that. So what are you going to do? And so what are you going to do with that person in the family? They've been crazy since I've known them. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with this brother that throws his life away, is blowing up his hand? What are you going to do with that guy? I don't know what to do. What are you going to do? It's a hopelessness justification. There's nothing to do. I mean, he's practically dead. You're not going to make it. And the lawyer's seeking to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus, in essence, pushes back and says, now, now wait a minute. You're the one who quoted the law. So you're, you're the one who gave the correct answer. And when you think about loving your neighbor as yourself, if you were in the ditch and you were half dead and you were bloody and muddy, is that what you hope the person walking by would think in their action towards you? Would, would, you, would you look at them and say, uh, don't, don't, you have to go teach. Don't touch me. Right? I'm infected, don't touch me. Would you hope that they would look at you and think, well, they're dead? Or would you act differently? Would you look up? I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I'm really quite happy, right? Would you, how would you want them to interact with you? Because Mr. Mr. Lawyer, you, you, you gave me that answer. Is that how you would want it applied? Now, Jesus uses a, a second illustration, a second guy in his story to, to push back on these justifications. So the priest comes down, verse 31, verse 32. Next guy's called a Levite. So too, verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. And the Levite's a little bit different than the priest because the Levite actually would have been able under their, their Jewish law to, to interact with a corpse. But the Levite, when he saw the guy that was half dead or possibly dead, he went to the other side of the road. And it wasn't because he had religious constraints on him. It was because of how he defined being a neighbor. So a Levite would have said this. This is what he would have been taught. He would have, they would have said, a neighbor is somebody who agrees with you religiously and culturally. A neighbor is somebody who agrees with you religiously and culturally. They are a, another Jewish person who have bought into the same subculture that you have. They're a, a citizen, not an illegal alien. 
So they agree with you religiously and culturally. And so when the Levite came by, he saw the guy. He went to the other side of the road. This is what he was thinking. He was looking and saying, well, you're obviously not Jewish. I don't need to take any ownership in that. That's not my problem because it's not actually in my circle of influence. The justification that the lawyer was struggling with, that Jesus was illustrating through the Levite, was what I call the somebody ought to justification. You know, somebody ought to do something about this drug epidemic. So, somebody, ought to, somebody ought to help straighten that kid out. Somebody, you know, somebody, somebody ought to do something about all this, this sex trafficking and stuff. That stuff's horrible. Somebody ought to hashtag ought to. So, somebody ought to... You know, the, the, the famine, the famine stats globally, somebody ought to feed those kids, man. Somebody ought to do that. Or, or another way to say it is they. You know, you know what they ought to do? Yeah, so they ought to get jobs in that neighborhood. You know what they ought to do? They, they, ought, to, they ought to help those single moms, the, the modern-day widows with fatherless children, the modern-day orphans. You know what they ought to do? My favorite, by the way, personal favorite, is the church oughta. Hey, Jeff, the church oughta. I get, I, you know, you send me that email, I'm like, hey, look what just got deleted. Like, the, the, right? You know, Jeff, you know what the church oughta do? The church oughta, you know what the church should do? You know what we oughta? It's a somebody oughta. Somebody oughta do something about the guy in the ditch. But I don't live in that neighborhood. That's not my school district. This, the holidays is the only time I get with my family. I'm overwhelmed with the kids. Right? We, after, after our cruise, we don't have extra money. Somebody ought to do something. And Jesus, looking at this guy that's trying to justify himself, just remember the context, he pushes back and he says, so... Is that loving the neighbor? If you were half dead in the ditch, love the neighbor at yourself, if you're half dead, looking up in the ditch, would you think, man, I hope somebody tweets this. I, I hope somebody, you know, gets a picture of this so it trends worldwide, me getting the snot kicked out of me. I, somebody, somebody ought to help me. Or would you hope or want something different? Now, Jesus, Jesus is actually, I don't believe Jesus is actually scolding this guy. I don't think he's like ripping him a new one. I think what Jesus is doing, I think he's helping him to think it through. He's looking at him and he's saying, listen, listen, you told me the answer. You've been raised in the answer. You understand the answer. Bunch of people wouldn't even have known to said, say that to me, but you did. But you're seeking to justify yourself. Let's do some math. And so what Jesus says to him in verse 33 is, is he, 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 he introduces another character. 
And the character he introduces is a Samaritan, verse 33, but a Samaritan as he traveled, came to where the man was and saw him and took pity on him. A Samaritan to an ancient Jewish person would be the equivalent to a a characterization or a generalization uh, of us, of somebody that we don't respect and we think of as hateful. So uh, it'd be like an Iranian mullah, a North Korean dictator. So Samaritan, a North Korean, Kim Jong-un, or, or the, you know, this Iranian guy, th- that guy comes along. It's, it was like an outrageous example that Jesus was giving. This guy that does not know the law of God would never even think to answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That has no, no concept of loving your neighbor as yourself. A Samaritan. He comes along And when he sees the guy, he takes pity on him and he does something fascinating. He does something that the priest and the Levite never did. He does something that the guys who knew the law didn't bother to do. He does something this. He went to him and he bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That was an ancient antiseptic. So he bandages his wounds. He cares for him medically. Then he puts the guy on his own donkey brought him to an end, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. That's a, that's a wad of cash in the ancient world. So he takes out two denarii, gives it to the innkeeper, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. What does the Samaritan do? The Samaritan, ready, self-initiates a sacrificial act for the benefit of another that's undeserved, not requested, for a guy he doesn't know. When he saw him, he went to him, right? He got down in the ditch. He got muddy and bloody, and he lifted the guy out of the ditch. He smelled like the guy. He had the blood on him like the guy. He had the mud on him like the guy. It would be a little bit hard to distinguish at that point which guy got mugged. He puts the guy on his own donkey, right? And he had just had it detailed. And he puts the guy on his own donkey. He takes him to the inn. He breaks out his wad of cash. This this will get you by. I got to keep going. But when I come back, I'm going to check on him. I'm going to square up with you. He followed through. He loved the guy. He didn't know the law. He wasn't raised in it. He wouldn't have answered Jesus correctly. But he didn't justify away his involvement. And Jesus looks back at the lawyer and he says, remember, I I don't think he's scolding or being salty or or scratchy with this guy. He, He looks back at the lawyer and he says, now you tell me, you gave me the answer, you tell me, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? You do your own math. Which one would you say lived out the answer that you gave? Right? And the expert in the law replied, verse 37, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. 
How do I I enact the love of Christ? What is a neighbor? What is the big idea? Tell me the ethos of neighboring. And Jesus looks at him and says, just get the guy out of the ditch. It's not that complicated. Just stop justifying your inaction. This, This Samaritan... He wasn't out trying to change the world. He didn't get a tweet, hashtag guy in ditch, I'm going to look for the guy in the ditch. That's not what he was doing. He was just walking. He was going, we call it your natural path of life. He's just probably on a business trip, going to do some business, Jericho, just along the way, and he came across a person a person who was defeated by life spiritually, emotionally, physically. He went to the person. He got his arms around the person. He paid for the person's care. He involved himself. It was more than awareness. Did you know there's a lot of robbery victims? Oh, really? Hashtag robbery. Like, it wasn't this cause. You know, I just feel so bad for people who get mugged. Oh, the crime in this culture. He personally involved himself with an individual. He got bloody, he got muddy, and he paid for it. He put his money where his mouth was. And he didn't just slap a little charity on something and call it a day. He came back and he followed through. And Jesus looks at this lawyer and he says, listen, love God, love people. That's what that is. That's it. It's not some big theological concept. It's not this difficult doctrine of the church. It's just that. Just get the guy out of the ditch. Don't walk past him. Do likewise. I love this quote, Andy Stanley. My favorite quote of his. He says this. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for all. Do for one what you wish you could do for all, Right? I, I, I can't solve sex trafficking. I can't do that. But I can help build the safe house that Rahab's building and help protect those 15 women. I mean, I can do that. I can pass on this and put my money over there. I, I, can't, I can't solve fatherlessness. I, ca- I cannot do it. But when my kids bring their friends home who don't have dads, I can be a dad to them. I can believe in them. When you coach that kid, when you teach that kid, when that kid lives next to you, you can do something about that. The kid's just in the ditch. That's probably why they act the way they act. I can't solve the heroin epidemic. I can't do anything about it. I don't even know. But, but I have three or four guys who are recovering addicts, and they give me their anniversary coins. If you're in the community, you know what I'm talking about. And I take those coins, and I set them on a shelf in my bathroom. And every morning when I brush my teeth, I pray for my friends and their sobriety. 
I've been uh, in the big book, when you go through the steps, the steps where you confess all that you've ever done. I've had, a, I've had several friends that they're like, can I confess to you? I'm like, yes. And it's great because they free that and then I got dirt on them. <laughs> I can do that. See how it works? I, I can't solve poverty. But I, I can get that kid something under the Christmas tree. I, I, can't, I can't tackle and fix mental illness. But that person that I know that struggles with it, that just drains the life out of all of us, I'll take them for Thanksgiving. You grab them for Christmas. That's how it works. We, will, we as a community, we can surround that person. And just like, and you're, well, you're just enduring the day. Right. It, it, it's really heavy to lift somebody out of a ditch. Right? That family member that's difficult. I, I, can't, I can't lead everyone on planet Earth to Christ. But I can actually know what my neighbor's spiritual destiny is. I can actually know what's going on in my roommate's life. I can, I can actually know my, my friend. I can't, I can't solve everybody's relational needs. But when I'm in junior high or high school, I can go to that kid that's rejected and invite them to sit at my table with my friend group because they don't have any. I can invite them to the party. I can make them a friend. And Jesus would look and say, that's all it is. You, you do for one what you wish you could do for all. You just don't walk by people in the ditch and leave them there. And then he would look and say, be careful uh, about your justifications. Because we, have, we will have, very, me too, a very sophisticated ways to justify why that law of God does not apply to me. And Jesus would push back and say, careful with that. Loving somebody doesn't always mean trusting them. Loving somebody certainly does not mean enabling them. We're not talking about that, but careful when you check the box and say there's no reason for me to adhere to that. Because you're the one who gave the answer, Mr. Lawyer. This is not a sermon Jesus is preaching. You should love your neighbors. This was the answer the guy gave. And Jesus was just looking and saying, why don't you do that? Let me give you a story to help you think it through. The Apostle James, Jesus' brother, he actually writes something that's pretty convicting and a little bit hard-hitting. He says this in James chapter 2, verse 14, and following, he says, what good is it, brothers or sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without, without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. 
show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Jesus' brother, James, would look at us and through the scripture and he'd say, listen, what good is it to say that you believe in God when you don't get anybody out of the ditch? He might look and say, you can't love God and not love people. You literally can't do that. How do I know I have eternal life? Because I love God and that, that will mean I love people. You can't do that. But I have faith. I go to church. I have religion. I have theology. I have doctrine. I know the Bible inside and out. I can quote it to you in the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek. Look at all that I know. And James says, yeah, the demons know that stuff. It doesn't prove anything. If none of it translates to the ditch, knowing the Bible while being bloody and dirty and muddy, pursuing God and not being afraid to get your newly detailed donkey dirty, being blessed by the Lord and that money is never out of your pocket into somebody else's life. You can tell me all you want to tell me. I'll show you what I believe because it's transformed me, right? Maybe think about this. Here's some questions for you. Is there a person in the ditch that you've been walking by. And their name might jump to your mind. But, but you, you might walk by them a lot. You might walk by them at school every day, at work, in your own family room. I don't know. Is there a person in the ditch you've been walking by? And Jesus would say, just do that. Just do like the Samaritan did it. Easy peasy. You don't, you don't even have to fix them, solve them, heal them, just get them out. Here's another question. Is there one that you could do for even though you can't do for all? When you think about, is there a way that I can give my life away? Is there a kid? Is there an adult? Is there a hard-to-love person? Is there a person in need, the Hope Project kind of stuff? Is there, is there somebody that I can do for one, even though I can't do for all, but I can make sure that this happens or this person is loved or this person is invited to Friendsgiving, right? And the last question, this question only applies to those of us who are Christ followers, okay? So if you're not a Christ follower, you're off the hook on this one, but here it is, ready? Guys, listen, if the people of God won't, who will? If the people who look and say, Christ, self-initiated, he walked to me in the ditch. I was in the ditch, half dead spiritually. He sacrificed. He got bloody and he got muddy. He stepped out of heaven and came into our mess that we created he gave, his, put his money where his mouth was, put his life where his mouth was. If the people of God who would have received and believed that truth, 
if we won't do this, who is going to do it? And I'm not talking about we solve all the problems of the world. That's a foolish thought. But for that person, that neighborhood, those kids, if we won't, no one will. Because no one has been pulled out of the ditch like I have. And that's why our Lord says, love like you've been loved. And when God looks at us, he would say, what I want my people known for, you as a Christ follower, Grace Church as a congregation, I want people to look be before truth, before doctrine, before morality, before cultural standings, before politics. I want everybody to be able to look at my people and say, at least I know those people will get me out of this ditch. They'll love me. And that, that's what I want my people to be known for, Jesus would say. Easy peasy. How do you love? Just like that guy did. That's it. And if the people of God will not allow God to stir this in us, then nobody will. And that's what James leans into. Don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe. Show me the evidence of the transformed heart and mind of Christ in you. Followers of Christ love differently. Jesus, help us with this. Or I struggle too. I'm, I'm the most selfish person I know. I want and I want and I hoard and justify. So God, all of us, change us, convict us, motivate us. Give us the joy of seeing you do this, Lord. And Lord, somehow move us differently. Let us be known for this. We may not agree. Sometimes we can't. But we'll love you. So Lord, on personal levels and on corporate levels, press deep into us. And Lord, during this time as we pray, and as we sing these prayers that we're gonna sing, give us boldness, give us courage, give us passion, motivate us to love differently. Thank you, Jesus, in your name.